and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Romeo. And this week, we are going to be talking about our second movie in the Stephen King on screen series, Salem's Lot. It's not a movie. What is it? It's a, well, it is a movie, but it's also a TV miniseries. How, how is it both of those things? Because it was released theatrically in Europe, like a lot of television series are. Oh, snap. Did it win any Oscars? No, not oh. in Europe where they don't That's have Oscars. True. But <laughs> they have the Golden Lion and the Palme d'Or and the Cinéma de Fromage, I, I believe is what they <laughs> Cinéma de Fromage. The, the first Eiffel. two of those are not like the Oscars. They're like film festival specific. But the oh. Cinéma de Fromage is... We'll be doing a lot of Stephen King films yes. that will fit into the cinema de fumage. That's true. So <laughs> This is not one of them. Before we start talking about Salem's Lot from 1979, mm-hmm. how was your week? Uh, my week was good. I actually, I, I don't remember it. I know that I had a birthday, and I know that uh, my friend and, me and our roommate went to the Winchester Mystery House. It's true. Which was, they did this for my birthday. I got to visit, so that was really fun. We went on the mansion tour mm-hmm. and the plus more backstage tour. Which is the basement and the attic. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we got to go through the front door. It was pretty impressive. Lots so many stairs. Oh, my body is not used to that many stairs, especially not... What are they called? Easy risers? Right, because she... Uh, what was her She issue? was four feet tall. Well, she was tiny, yes. And, <laughs> and she had arthritis. Arthritis. And that was the, the reason why she did not want to take actual adult steps. She being Sarah Winchester. Sarah Winchester. The she owner and designer of um, the quote-unquote most haunted house ever, even though I'm telling you... It's not that haunted. Well, if it is haunted, it's very benignly haunted. It's benignly haunted. It's not haunted like it's not like we're going to someplace, you know, like um, Hill House. No. 95% of the energy in that house is right. people who want it to be haunted. Right. Just putting that energy out. Well, it's it's a very odd place. I don't think... I didn't get the sense of tragedy when I was there. Like, I, I have a friend who... Um, is a confirmed skeptic. She's uh, spent most of her life in the Midwest. A confirmed skeptic. So did she take a test? Yeah, she took a step that said, a test that said you are a skeptic. Um, but uh, she there's she mentioned that there are places in the Midwest where she's from where she would not go camping on this particular area, or you can sense something wrong with it. Uh, and this is from somebody who doesn't believe in such things, but there's still a sense of wrong and probably Windigo. More probably alien or alien burial ground. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Native burial ground. Right, and and appropriate to this discussion, I have a, another friend who um, she went to a uh, martial arts training camp back east once, and the people who were there, uh, the camp that they rented had actually been a Civil War battlefield. Oh yeah, and that's going to be haunted as balls later on, and so people were having. So these issues where they were feeling sick or they were nauseous. And then it got to the point where one woman felt her hair getting pulled or another one got shoved out of bed. 
It was pretty bad, and then eventually yeah, found because out, people who died on a Civil War battlefield right. died in a horrible passion. At the Winchester and Mystery House, we all house, know that's how you make a ghost. Right, death by horrible passion. People basically who were being paid twice the normal rate to yeah. keep building a house, so everyone was fairly happy. No one was killed in the making of the building, house, and right. I don't think that people killed by the guns could find the house. Well, they certainly couldn't with all these staircases leading to nowhere. I will say. And this is something they covered before the tour, that the, the, the host for the tour was telling us if somebody feels sick or nauseous mm-hmm. or uncomfortable, I can understand that because there are moments when There's ver- it's, it's vertigo-inducing. Really claustrophobic, it too. Is. It was designed in- for a very small person. Right. My head was... We had to wear hard hats, hard hats during yeah. the, the second part of the tour. Yeah. And, yeah, I would have whacked my head several times. Well, there was a lot of ducking. Uh-huh. And once again, as you say, windy staircases that are very narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the houses, in a 160-room house, uh-huh. a lot of those rooms don't have windows directly to the outside. Right. They have windows to hallways that allow light to come in from other windows. Mm-hmm. And that can be... And I'll tell you, that I mentioned this, the effect it had on me was that I couldn't sleep that night. And there was several hours of my brain trying to process everything mm. that I saw. Because there's so like, much this doesn't make on. sense. Right. It, it, it was really, it gave me kind of a headache the next morning, but I couldn't sleep that well that night. And I would wake up every couple of, well, not every couple of hours, every half hour or so, and just with this picture in my head of where the hell did that staircase go? So really, I can understand people coming away being completely bewildered and confused by that house. But it was a really interesting trip, and there was really good food afterwards. So that was my birthday story. What about you? What did you do this week? I went to the Winchester Mystery House with oh my, my God, best really? friend for Tell his me more. birthday. Uh, and I've been editing our new show. Mm-hmm. Well, that That's works. basically what I've been doing, working on mm-hmm. that and making little videos for it. I might make videos for this show too, because now I've learned how to do it, and I'm unstoppable. <laughs> so that's happening. And we saw Salem's Lot. And we watched Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Well, from one creepy weird house to a different creepy weird house that stars in this movie and book. It uh, we'll stars, talk. yes. It stars. That's it, the it, star it's, of it. It's one of the stars of this movie, certainly. Well, I don't think they could have made this movie if not for this house. You have to have a good house. It's like Psycho. Without the motel, what do you do? What are we we all doing here? I had never read or watched Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was all new to me. Yeah, this is one of the books that my ex-wife read to me when we were assembling my son's room and uh, my future son, because at the time, well, now he's an actual son, but... Uh, this was before he was born. I was painting, I was cleaning up, we were getting furniture, stuff like that. So there was a lot of time just making this room up for him. And um, and she read fairly quickly and I got through it pretty quickly. It's a good story. I enjoyed the book. Um, and But the I'd actually seen the film first. It was broadcast in 1979. I forget which network it was. Well, let's start with the book. Right. The book was written or published in mm-hmm. 1975 right. in October because that's Halloweeny uh, by Doubleday. It's a 439-page book, so one of his smaller books, I think. That's so weird. And this book, and less so the movie, has a lot of interconnection with 
the King Universe. Mm-hmm. It is mentioned in Wolves of the Kala. Mm. Jus- Salem's Lot or Jerusalem's Lot isn't mentioned, but Ben and Mark, two of the characters, are mentioned oh, yeah. uh, in Wolves of the Kala. Uh, Father Callahan reveals he was sent to Los Zapatos and saw Ben's funeral uh, while Mark was a young adult male. So, uh, young adult man. <laughs> young adult male makes right. it sound like a... <laughs> uh, so... Further, uh, in the short story, One for the Road, uh, Ben is not mentioned, but the fire in Salem's Lot is mentioned, Mm. which we see at the end of this. Um, And this story was done, was for television. Do we, we didn't know which, the post art is something else. It makes me laugh. Warner Brothers Television, original network, CBS, CBS. aired November 17th to November 24th. I think it means November 17th and November 24th, Mm. 1979. It's two episodes. The whole one time, because we watched it on Amazon as one movie, and Mm. it was three hours and three minutes long. Which is probably how long the theatrical release was. Presumably, yeah. Uh, 184 minutes, it says here. I said 183, mm-hmm. and I stick by it. <laughs> and it was directed by Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper. Of many fames, but uh, mostly... Well, I knew him first for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. a film I've never seen. Yeah, I've never seen it either. And he directed Poltergeist until he was mushed out. Right. Correct? Mm-hmm. By your favorite... <laughs> Steven Spielberg, yes. Or well, swooped in. Steven at the Spielberg end. was interested in making a different kind of movie, and there's a, a really good documentary which I can probably include on the page. Oh, yeah, give me the notes is, and I'll include it. Where there. you can see the transition clearly taking place where people didn't, you know, Spielberg wanted to make more of a funhouse kind of movie, and Toby Hooper was making a horror movie. Yeah, Steven Spielberg doesn't like horror. Like, mm-hmm. he is scared easily, is my, right. is my feeling. After hearing about his interaction with paranormal activity, and right, where like he that. literally could not sleep. It's like get the, the, DVD the DVD out of the house. house. Um, uh, in his house, I think also that he doesn't know how to go. There, there's some directors. Oliver Stone did a movie called The Hand, which we saw uh, with Michael Caine mm-hmm. um, earlier in his career, and then he did another horror film called Seizure, and then he just stopped because he was in the impression you could make horror films and make money, which they do. But he said that he didn't have, and that was a great confession from a guy like him. He didn't have the ability to make horror movies. It takes a certain kind of mindset mm-hmm. to do them right. And I think Steven Spielberg doesn't know how to... He doesn't have It's that not mindset. in him, yeah. He can make... I mean, you could consider Jaws a horror film, or you could consider even Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but they're very um, kind of funhouse horror, like you wanted right. with Poltergeist, which is things jump out of, at but. you and whatever. And so the kind of feeling of unease that you get when you're watching, like we'll be watching The Shining or we'll be watching The Dead Zone or whatever. Right, or even this one. This one, that feeling of something that is... If Steven Spielberg had made Jaws the way that he mm-hmm. wanted to make Jaws, with a working Jaws, mm-hmm. it would not have been a very good movie. Yeah. <laughs> and something that we'll, we'll talk about in the future is that they cross paths several times. Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg? No, Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. Oh, interesting. Including the, the idea that he, Rose Red was originally supposed to be a Steven Spielberg film. Oh, no. Why would he want to, did he just want to get a piece of everything? He wanted to do another version of The Hunting. 
And then in the end, he just wound up doing producing a remake of The Haunting. Of Haunting. Which was notoriously bad. But mm. that's, all, that's in the wah, future. Wah. In the future. <laughs> we'll talk about that um, later then. But this movie I have a, a very fond memory of because it was on when I was a kid. Yes, you were 10? Uh, 1979, let's see. You were 10. Okay. I've yeah. given away his age, everyone. Right. Yes. <laughs> you also given away the fact that I had dyscalculus. So for math, don't... I was, I was a lot... Well, mm. I was in utero okay. <laughs> when this movie came out. But I didn't get to see it because this was considered too frightening for me to see as a I kid. feel like 10 was a little young to yeah. watch this, now, probably. Everyone in my class had seen it, and they were whispering about it under their breath all day, like, oh, God, did you see that? Did you see that? And... Um, and so I heard about it for quite a while, and then one day, I actually found the two the two VHS cassette set being sold in the bargain bins at like a blockbuster. They were getting rid of everything, you know. Did you sneak it? And I I I bought it. And I, you you would have been of age by right. now. <laughs> I loved it. It was so much fun because it had a lot of my favorite. Actors isn't it? A lot of like seventies actors I grew up with, like Bonnie Bedelia. Yeah, and, there are very good right. actors in this, and also James Mason. Um, it's wonderful. Some interesting effects, right? I will say interesting. It's it's a lot of fun. So the writer, mm-hmm. other than Stephen King for the novel, mm-hmm. is Paul Monash or Monash, who. I looked at the, his writing credits and I didn't recognize many of them, but he mm-hmm. was also a fairly prolific producer. Mm-hmm. He produced Carrie. Right. So wow. this is his, he's two for two and on this Stephen is the King. second adaptation, right? So that means he just, he produced Carrie and thought, I'm going to buy up all this guy's stuff if I can. Maybe. Get ahead of it. Um, and then he later he produced Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> that's the <a> same. <laughs> so that's, those are the sort of what he's known for. He was an executive producer of Peyton Place. Oh, wow, the TV show. Yep. He was an executive producer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, mm. Slaughterhouse-Five, um, Carrie, Murder and Peyton Place, uh, and then got producer credit for the 99 movie Carrie 2, The Rage, and uh, the TV movie from 2002 for wow. Carrie, because I guess once you have the rights, you hold on to them for dear life. Uh, so that's sort of his most known for. Uh, but he did he did write this entire series. Yeah. And he did a good job. Uh, Stephen King later mentioned how impressed he was yes. with uh, his ability to collapse certain characters and combine others and get the essence of the book, even if he wasn't able to, in in this very brief period of time, go into all the details. Of yeah, the, the the characters, there are significantly more characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really get close to three households, mm-hmm. four, maybe four households. Which is scope for a horror story. That too. is, yeah, yeah, that's pretty extensive. Uh, so, are we going to go over the plot? Um, yeah, let, okay. well, let's do... Because we're going to re- be referring back to it at points. Yeah. I'm going to do... Well, let's do the the simplest of plots. Okay. A novelist and young horror fan attempt to save a small New England town which has been invaded by vampires. I want to do a longer synopsis. Mm-hmm. The successful writer Ben Mears returns to his hometown of Salem's Lot, Maine. Yeah, guys, we're in Maine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. 
expecting to write a new novel about the Marston house. Ben believes that the manor is an evil house that attracts evil men since the place has had many tragic stories, and Ben saw a ghastly creature inside the house when he was ten. Ben finds that the Marston house has just been rented to antique dealers Richard K. Straker and his partner Kurt Barlow, that is permanent, who is permanently traveling. Ben meets the divorced teacher Susan Norton, she's not divorced, <laughs> living with her parents, and they have a love affair. Ben also gets close to her father, Dr. Bill Norton, and his former school teacher, Jason Burke. When people start to die of anemia, Ben believes that Stryker's partner is a vampire, but how to convince his friends that he is not crazy, and this is the truth. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so that was written by somebody on IMDb. And that's actually pretty good. Yeah. There, there you go. go. <laughs> the novelist we're talking about, that's Ben Mears, mm -hmm. played in this version by... Um, uh, Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. From Starskin Hutch, his actual name is David Soul. David I was Soul. really expecting you to come in there. <laughs> I, I, didn't know. I thought you were going to go for it. Is David Soul. Mm-hmm. So he is our protagonist. Right. Uh, we start with him and Mark... In the future. And then yeah. we go, diddly, 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 two years earlier. Um, and they are wearing, they might just be super dirty, but it kind of looks like they're wearing brown face. Well, the <laughs> idea is at this point, these two young Caucasian people have been spending years traveling through the Guatemalan jungle, possibly starting at Mexico and working their way down. So now they're sort of like, they look sort of, for even for... They look before, orange. They, they look... They're badly sunburned tanned. and dirty and haggard, like they've just been running through a jungle. And Away from all of the vampires. Right, which they have a really neat method of telling when a vampire is near. Which yes. Is they've got glowing holy water. Stealing holy water. Which... They steal it from the church, and then they have it in little jars, and then sometimes a star appears in it, like, it's like Jesus is coming. Or something, and <laughs> it turns out it's just the opposite. <laughs> and you have to watch out because vampires are near. So this is David Soul and Lance Kerwin, who's playing Mark Petrie, who right. in the movie is about 14 years old. Right. In the book was about 10. I think it's good that they aged him right, up. Right, they had to age him up. Because there's a lot of kind of like violence against children, surprising for this yeah, time too. a lot. Kind of a lot. Let me give you the introduction to uh, Ben Mir's appearance from the book, okay. Salem Slot. Uh, this is from the point of view of his paramour's father. <laughs> so, <laughs> the man who came back in with her was lanky and agile looking, with finely drawn features and a thick, almost greasy shock of black hair that looked freshly washed despite its natural oiliness. He was dressed in a way that impressed Bill favorably. Plain blue jeans, very new, and a white shirt rolled to the elbows. Now... David Soul is many things. Uh, dark haired is not one no. of them. <laughs> but David Soul, I thought, was a good um, choice because he was a very introspective kind of actor. And that really, his ability here to be sort of quiet and haunted looking, he does come across as very kind of tortured because he's returning home to write a book. He grew up in Salem's Lot. Yes. He's returning home to write a book about the Marsden House. Now, let's pause there. Mm -hmm. This is our first main character author. Mm -hmm. We're going to have many, many yes, more. 
Uh, we're going to have one next week. Write about what you know. So this is Stephen King putting Stephen King right in Stephen King's world. Right. <laughs> so, yes, he has come back to write about this house that he believes is fundamentally evil. And now we later on find out that he was dared to go into the house, and he believes that he saw a ghost. Yes, the ghost of a hanging uh, former occupant. Yeah, and so because of that, he comes back to the house now wondering if he really saw it at all, like a lot of sort of faded childhood memories. Right. And in doing that, he connects with a lot of the people that he grew up with. In the book, he left when he was four. Uh In the movie, he left when he was 11. Which makes Um, more sense. Which, so... So having that kind of experience at 11 feels way better than having that kind of experience at four. That's too young to have that kind of experience. Um, so, so Ben is in town to write a book. He gets a, uh, he starts to stay, he wants to stay at the house, which mm-hmm. is bonkers, uh, but it's being rented and we'll get there. Uh, so he stays in a rooming house. Which apparently in New England is still a thing in the 70s. And immediately, even though he's there for work, he's looking for love. (laughs) No, when he goes up to uh, Susan Norton, immediately as she's like laying in this thicket, Mm -hmm. drawing. Oh, she's got his book. Right. That's right. His book is... um, sort of open on the ground right, next to her. So he goes but he goes up to her like he knew her when they were younger. Like uh-huh. he goes up to her with all the brashness of a we definitely already know each other uh-huh. even though apparently they've never met. <laughs> Which I was like, wait, he doesn't know her and he's just right. gonna go up and start talking to her like this? She's fine with it. In, he's handsome and she's lovely. In the book, there is a weird drawing of these two people together. And oh, okay. it, it mentions that, that he feels like he knows her and he's just really comfortable with her right away. You get makes, that from this as right, well? which makes it more tragic what happens right. later on. Um, but yeah, Bonnie Bedelia, who was just like the doe-eyed, tiny slip of a waif. That... She is, yes, she's very <laughs> small. She, um, most recently, I believe, is the uh, was the matriarch in the Parenthood television series. Okay. Uh, opposite Coach. Spike <laughs> Nelson. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, she was great in *The Boy Who Could Fly* as the mom. Oh, I she forgot was, she was in that. I should she watch was that great movie as again. Shirley and just Muldowney, the race car driver in *Heart Like a Wheel*. She was great in um, as in, at least in the first two uh, *Die Hard* films as was um, she his wife? His wife. Oh, right. really? Yeah, interesting. And she was really good in um, the film with Harrison Ford, *Presumed Innocent*. Where she's in the middle of a really stellar cast of people like Harrison Ford and Brian Dennehy. But yeah, she's she's really great. But anyhow. So she and he start dating while he is going to be working on this uh, story. Now, um, so he is introduced to her father, who is the town doctor and a gossip. Now, we should talk about this, how this works. Those two meet. She's very forward, but in an incredibly quiet way. It's really cute because they're like two really quiet people. He asked her out to dinner. She takes him to her parents' house. Yes, let's go to dinner. You right. can come to dinner and meet my parents. This is not because she has issues and she's living with her parents. She lost her job in New York and she's now... She's re- home. Right. I don't... 
Is she staying with her parents? She's staying with her parents for the time being until okay. she gets And she's the teaching job. art at the right. middle school. Uh, she is an artist, I guess. Um, yeah, but she lost her job in New York um, and so has come home to... It's a real millennial story, yeah. even though <laughs> she is not that. Uh, the other featured characters um, that we see right at the beginning are uh, Crockett, the real estate agent, and his um, secretary? secretary. Boom Boom. Boom Boom Bonnie. We don't know her name is Boom Boom until later. Her name is Bonnie. Uh, once they you are see definitely... her in her tracksuit, you'll understand what the Boom Boom is. They're having an affair. Um, she's married to... What's his name? Oh, my God. It's George DeZunda. I remember... Yes, that's... Cully Sawyer is his name. Cully Sawyer. Thing. George DeZunda, who is later... will He'll be in Law & Order someday, but in this movie, he is a drunk who likes his couch right. and shotguns. Um, and he was sometimes impotent, we're told. So that's one of the storefronts in the main drag of the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, another storefront is a opening soon antique store run by Straker and Barlow. But do we see Barlow? Not no. yet. Later. Uh, we see Straker, played by the voice of God, James Mason. Who is great in this film. He really goes from, I'm a real actor to I am going to do the most bananas things (laughs) (laughs) and my face is going to look the same the whole time. James Mason started his career playing villains in these sort of bodice ripper films uh, films, uh, in England. Mm -hmm. He was always playing the villain, you know, the, the, the... Horrible aristocrat. So he, that was his roots. Oh, yes. Then he became he a, speaks with disdain better than right. anyone else. And so he wound up becoming a movie star thanks to things like A Star is Born and whatever, and he became a mainstream movie star. He did a great performance as Norman Maine in A Star is Born. But he loved doing things like this. He appears in Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He loved doing... Um, I'm sorry, you said Norman Maine. Is that the brother? Or the main character. That's the main character. In the, in the, um, Norman Maine is the main character in his version of A Star is Born. Okay. I didn't... Right. Yeah. Uh, and Jer- who's the woman in that one? Uh, it's Judy Garland. Judy Garland. He did it with Judy Garland. Okay. So, uh, which I have yet to see. Uh, I, I should probably catch up with it and then see the new one. But So he had a fondness for this kind of material. He loved Journey to the Center of the Earth, which he's very, mm-hmm. you know, which was a huge part of my childhood. But he was a serious actor by this point in his career, so the opportunity to go back and just do a literal... He he nearly twirls his mustache at one point. Just sort of go all in as a villain probably really appealed to him. Because apparently he loved the script. His, oh. uh, his wife at the time appears in the movie because he just wanted to get her a part where she could be with him on set. Right. Cackling about how fun Because I'm sure this took was. a while to film. Oh, yeah. So the one piece that we're missing now is the kids. So... Uh-huh. Ben does go and visit his former school and um, hooks up with Jason Burke, his former teacher. He's played by Lou Ayers. Who's, I like him. He's lovely. Yes. He, uh, they're doing a school pageant of, you know, all the people who died in the Civil War from this town, which apparently is what, according to this and Gilmore Girls, every town on the East Coast Mm -hmm. has a pageant performed by children wherein they talk about how they all died in the Civil War. This and memorizing Song of Hiawatha were things that kids had to do back then. So strange. 
So apparently this is written by the students. And mm. the student that's writing it right now, this year, is Mark Petrie. And he's like a mini Ben. And he very much looks like yes. a mini Ben. They could be father and um, son. In the, in the book, the yeah. book opens with everyone presumed they were father and son. Mm. Like that's how the book, those are like, that's like the first sentence. Everyone presumes they're father and son. So he's 14. Mark Petrie mm. is 14 in this. Um, and he is played by Lance Kerwin, a person you know, but I do not. Mm-hmm. Strong jawline for a child. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, the, that was my takeaway for, for uh, Lance Kerwin. Um, and he is a fan of the occult and his right. accountant father doesn't understand him. And he's he just like, is, I like what I like. I don't know. He's a monster kid. And for people who don't know what that is, sometime in the mid 50s or 60s, when television began to take off, Television syndication, uh, syndicating programs, I guess, bought a lot of the old universal horror films and put them on TV. And that was the invention of horror hosts. They had to have a place to show them. So they'd show them late at night, Svanguli and creature features and things like that. So that first generation of monster kids turned out to be people like Phil Tippett and Rick Baker and Stan Winston. Mm These people who watched those movies and influenced them so much, they became a part of the film industry or began to write. Stephen King is one of those kids. Right. So... It's like it's something that doesn't exist anymore. I think I was the tail end of that when they had yeah. horror hosts, and you were watching these movies late at night because they were uh, they could get past a broadcast standards at the time and show more violent and scary things. Mm-hmm. It's not something we ever have to worry about in the age of Game of Thrones, right? Um, or American Horror Story, for that matter, right? But um, but yeah, it's just as a context for that. These were kids who loved horror. He loves magic. Yeah, he does magic. He can get out of knots and um, uh, handcuffs. handcuffs. This will come in handy later. Right. Uh, so he has two friends, and um, those are those are the first and second <laughs> casualties of this. Like <laughs> this movie, this movie hard kills kids. Right. <laughs> this movie kills kids and parents. Right. Parents in ridiculous ways. So Those parents died there so There are these different machinations, <laughs> but but fundamentally, Stryker hires the the realtor mm-hmm. to take care of getting uh, something, picking something up at the docks in Portland, right, uh, and bringing it back to the, the house. Apple white sideboard. Yes, sure, sure, that's that. what it is. Apple white. He is going to be out of town for this. Uh, the realtor hires his secretary's husband, Handy Handy, mm-hmm. who also who owns a truck. He's got like a moving company or something. Now he passes the job on to off to the grave digger and a plumber who was dating Susan. Who was before a, Ben showed up? Yeah, but I don't think just before. I think mm-hmm. like in high school. Right. <laughs> like it feels. Because he to says me to like her at one point. You said you loved me, and she said that was a million years ago. It was ago. a million years ago. I literally think that they were dating in high school, and right. now he sees her with somebody else, and he can't right. fucking take it. Um, and these her. are grown-ass people. These people are in their 30s or mm. more. Right. So uh, Cully sends off the his two buddies. He's going to pay them to go pick up, make this delivery, because he's going to stick around and catch his wife in bed with her boss. And he's got a gun, and he's prepared to have this this conversation and this confrontation. Using a gun. So he drinks a whole bunch. She dresses up in the weirdest outfit. It's a 
like it's a spandex tracksuit. I don't know what they were going for. It looks like she's going to run the 50-yard dash and then jello wrestle another lady. The 50-yard dash at the Playboy Mansion or something. It's It's so bizarre. And then she's wearing little shoes, too. I'm just like, what is happening? I think this was networks and standards going, no, you can't can't show show negligee. Maybe that's what it is. Because we get to see her boss in... In his, he's wearing red satin boxers. Right, because <laughs> he's going on a special date with a special lady, and that is what you do. You dress up. Uh, so, oh, he's played by Fred Willard. By Fred Will- Willard, people. yeah. So, who's very hairy apparently um, in his youth. I don't. Not any more than every other man in the seventies. I feel like every man in the seventies was hairy. <laughs> But um, so he does walk in on them, and mm. he breaks them up. He doesn't shoot anyone, but he does chase what's his face off with in just his boxers, mm-hmm. and then he beats the shit out of his wife. So that's fun because the next time we see her, she's got bruises all over her face. So right. yay! It's a lovely time. Yeah, um, lots of gossip and wife beating and meanwhile, infidelity. we've got the grave digger who is Mike. Mike and Ryerson. The plumber, who is Ned, Mike yeah. and Ned, are taking Cully's truck to go pick up this this uh, sideboard. It's not a sideboard. No. The other part of their their instructions are to put it in the cellar and then to bring four padlocks. Stout padlocks. To Leave the keys of the padlocks on the cellar door, or on the cellar table, and to padlock the cellar door, the front door, the back door, and the garage, like the shed door. Mm -hmm. Basically, padlock everything. Padlock everything from the outside, but lock the keys inside. So I don't quite know what that's supposed to happen. So they pick up the the uh, the big ass box. And it's very cold, and Mike is like, or Ned is like, this is Ned making me is uncomfortable. Out. We should open it. And Mike is like, no, I don't fucking want to open it. Right. Uh, they almost get in a car accident on the way back because the truck, the box is like moving towards them. <laughs> and and Mike, while driving, is turned his craned his head around and is looking at the box. And is I'm it, like, you're gonna die. A great but, example yeah. of scary bordering on funny. Like it's a yeah. good balance there of them watching the box slide, slide toward towards them. them. <laughs> it's really great. So then they get the box in the cellar, mm-hmm. and then it's still super cold. And then Mike is like, or Ned is like, I'm gonna go grab like a crowbar, and we're gonna open this. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, why? If you think it's unnatural and terrible, why do why you want to open, open it? Seems like a mistake. Um, but then they get scared and they run away mm-hmm. and they just throw the, <laughs> the keys and the padlocks into the cellar and then just close the cellar door. No locks happen. And then everybody dies. <laughs> that starts the plague of vampirism in this town. Yes. So uh, the two boys, uh, the two, what are their names? The brothers. The brothers. Uh, Mark's friends are walking home Um the older brother thinks the younger brother is dumb for being scared of this shortcut through the woods and abandons him. And then the younger brother gets taken by a big shadow. We don't know what. Hold on. We'll be right back. 
And then the other brother gets home, but he's all disoriented. Yeah, and anemic. Uh, and anemic. Because anemia happens. No, 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 he hasn't. Well, he gets diagnosed with anemia later. Later, yeah. but not yet. He hasn't been anemiated yet. Anemiated? Not until his brother comes into his window. That's true. Um, Come to my window <laughs> and scratch. Meanwhile, uh, that would be good stuff. Ben and Susan are necking at the lake, uh-huh. and then they find Cully. Nope, uh-huh. not no, Cully. They find Crockett. Crockett behind the wheel of a car, still in his lovely red undies. <laughs> uh, dead? Yes, we don't know. He's dead. They call the police. And so like, I should mention that it's more than necking, because at one point you see her tuck her shirt in to her sh- belt. Necking means many things. Yes, they had sexual intercourse. You don't know that they had sexual they intercourse. Uh-huh. I think they did. <laughs> well, that's, that's why fine, she had to tuck in her know. shirt. Because that's I'm what sorry. It, other that's things what it things meant in the 70s when you tuck in your shirt. You <laughs> had sexual you intercourse. Sex. That's not... Okay, we, but that's we not... We took what we could get back then. How that works. A uh, little under-the-shirt action also could involve tucking your shirt back in. And that's not sexual intercourse. Uh, so now we have one dead man and one missing child. But wait. Uh, there's more. Then we see Stryker go back back in the cellar. Stryker, back in the cellar. And he's looking around like at the, the pile of padlocks on the floor and how that nothing was locked up the way that he said he was it, it right. said to do. And the box has exploded from the inside. Just like, it's, there's just shards everywhere. I, just, I, I get this picture in my head, thank God they didn't show it, of like a topless girl jumping out of a birthday cake at a bachelor party. Oh, like in Under Siege 2. Yeah, that's kind of the picture I had, <laughs> only going through the cake through instead the of cake. popping off the top. Yeah, so the, the, the box has... Is splintered and destroyed, but mm-hmm. the in the contents of the box are nowhere to be found. And he sort of just shrugs and then puts a parcel down on this very nice table and opens the parcel. And inside the parcel is the younger of the sons, the missing kid, who apparently is dead or hypnotized or something, but more likely dead. There's no blood in this vampire movie. It's hard to figure out who's dead and who's out, alive. As you pointed out, there is one drop of blood one that's drop. described to us. We'll get there later. It. It's not there yet. Yes, there's one <laughs> drop of blood in this entire movie. Uh, so Straker just <laughs> nonchalantly just sort of shrugs and looks like, here's your child. I don't know where you're at. I wanted him to ring a dinner bell because that would be funny. But... So... Meanwhile, all all everybody in the town is like, "Where's Barlow? Have you seen Barlow? Does anybody know Barlow? Where's it? Where's Barlow? Mm, you all don't want to see Barlow." Mm-mm. Um, Kurt. Then that same young boy floats up to his brother's window mm-hmm. and hypnotizes him to let him in, and then he bites him because <laughs> he's got vampire eyes right. and he's vampire teeth and he's, and he's a vampire. And then his brother is sick, has to go to the hospital, has anemia. Pernicious anemia. Pernicious anemia. The worst anemia, kind of anemia. Which is also what Crockett had died of. Right. Pernicious anemia. And then there's another incident where the boy comes for his brother in mm-hmm. the hospital, and that's, he finishes him off. Inc- a fatal incident. 
And then there's one drop of blood yes. on his shirt. And then a very bosomy nurse comes in and finds him. And screams. <laughs> yes. Well, he's at a weird angle. I probably would have screamed too. I don't like crazy neck angles. She's actually right now, what you can't see is she's trying to duplicate the neck angle and probably yeah, hurting herself. my neck doesn't it. do it. Because you're not Too tense. Dead. Also not dead. You're a wigwam, you're a teepee. <laughs> and then things start sort of speeding up. Oh, we see Cully and his wife drive out of town, mm-hmm. so they're going to be spared from the vampire. She's all bruised. It's real bad. It's like very problematic. And then Ben is like, the house is evil. The men in it are evil. And if I'm being drawn to it, does that mean I'm evil too? That's his inner yeah, turmoil. True. I'm inner like, turmoil. Which I literally said. I was like, well, then why are you drawn to it? And then he looks at Susan and goes, what does it mean about me? Why am I drawn to it? And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> why did Emily know what's going on? I why figured out this movie. It? I've solved it. Um... The gravedigger is digging the grave for the child, mm. gets knocked out, is all discombobulated, has bites on his neck, mm-hmm. is invited to stay with um, the teacher, because uh-huh. the teacher has been the teacher forever and has taught all of these people, yeah, so if you're not like doing it. well, come into my house and I will we'll take you to the doctor tomorrow. But he ends up vampired, and they... They have an, a middle-of-the-night tiny exorcism where Ben has to bring a crucifix. He, <laughs> Go ahead, get off. This is my favorite up. line maybe ever. He answers the phone at the boarding house, and he's like, and, and the line is, hell no, I'm a Baptist. Right. Well, Which he's responding to, do you have a crucifix? <laughs> hell no, I'm a Baptist. Hell no, no I'm a Baptist. <laughs> like, the idea that he would have a crucifix right. is so upset. Like, I'm not one of those cat lickers. <laughs> hell no, I'm a Baptist. And But he does get a crucifix mm-hmm. from the owner of the, right. <laughs> of the bed and breakfast. The boarding house. Right. The boarding house. And uh, takes it over there. To no avail. Everyone is dying. Right. He died. Let's see. I think Jason gets bit. And then. Is that it? So Mike's out. mm -hmm. Ned gets taken out. Jason gets taken out. And then. Oh. And then they get... Well, Jason doesn't... Jason has a heart attack. That's right. After exercising this guy yeah, from his house. that's right. And Jeffrey Lewis, the actor, is very creepy in this makeup. He does a great job of playing dead, so that seems Yeah, they really made over. him like a weird purple color. Right. It's, it's unsettling. And that's right, he sees that and he right. like... He's just like, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> right. He literally has a heart attack and he and dies. And then Straker and Barlow get... Just real forward. Uh-huh. <laughs> they just go to the Petrie's house. Uh-huh. And it's unclear to me why this is happening. It's happening because the boy is aware of what's going on. Because their son, what's his name? Mark. Mark. I keep thinking of his real name. Mark sees, and that's a great scene too, the vampire friend coming at the window. <gasps> that's right. And instead That's of right. allowing him in, and he's being hypnotized too, but you have to invite a vampire in because Stephen King is playing very much by the old-fashioned rules. Right. 
he has all these dioramas of vampires and monsters around, and, and one of them picks is a graveyard. Up, yeah, picks he picks up, up a, a crucifix. A crucifix, and he drives away the vampire. That's right. And because of that, now he knows, and That's that right. makes him No, he was, and he's still not quite sure. Like, he gets back in bed, and he's like got tears coming down mm. his face. Because he's yelled, "Go away, go away!" Right. And that woke up his dad, and his dad's like, "Are you having? Are you? Ha- you're having nightmares." Now his parents were just worried that he wasn't more upset, right. and now he's having nightmares, and they're like put off by his that. Parents, and this is a good portrayal for anybody who has grown up loving horror and monsters and things, because it happened in my family too, which is they think there's something wrong with him, and they yeah. keep asking him, "When are you going to grow out of this?" Are you know you're. And he, the, the kid has a really intelligent way of explaining it, going, yeah. well, you were into numbers, Dad, and you became an accountant, and I'm into this. And the dad's like, well, you can't make any money from this. Which is a lie. Which is what somebody told Stephen King a long time yes, ago. Right. And, no, <laughs> that's right. No, that's 100% what happened. So, um, so there's that kind of conflict. But when the monster shows up, his parents, though, are not villains, we should say. No, they're not. They're just right. clueless. And... They remind me of uh, Guillermo del Toro. You know, it's like he said his parents were worried about him loving monsters. And but his grandmother tried to exercise him at one point because she was doof. really frightened. And How about he said, no, you know, mom? I wanted to invite God into my heart. She wanted me to, and I invited Godzilla instead. Oh, hey! Which is a whole. You can have both. I'm living proof of that. So <laughs> that's right. So he knows. Right. That so he's the danger. At too. least subconsciously, he's mm-hmm. aware. So, Straker just shows up with Barlow, and we mm. finally see him. And he's a real Nosferatu. Right. He's a real blue Nosferatu. Now, in the book, um, Barlow is not like that. Barlow is articulate. He has lines. He talks. He kind of feels like he's writing. Uh, King is writing about Christopher Lee with his description. Oh, interesting. And we know that Stephen King does things like that. We also know that he liked Christopher Lee. Everyone who grew up with him, it's like, he's terrifying. So when they did the remake of this film, Barlow is played by Rucker Hauer, and very much in, he has lines, he talks, he mm-hmm. articulates, he speaks to people. He, what the producer, Paul Monash, is that it? And the producers of this film felt was that we had seen, and this is the 70s, remember, we had just come oh, off of, yeah, two years ago or three years before that, Christopher Lee was doing his Dracula. Right. And so everyone had seen that over and over and over again. He goes, we can't scare people with that right now. Um, Mind you, we couldn't the remake because years had passed, but we needed a monster. And so they came up with the idea of going back to the Mac Shrek Nosferatu makeup and hiring Reggie Nalder, who has a really distinctive and weird face, uh, to play this character. So this was He's got teeth on the front, not Mm -hmm. just teeth on the side. Party in the back. (laughs) Teeth in the front, party in the back. Uh, He's very blue. I will say I do like the the kids have slightly reflective eyes. The adult vampires have Mm -hmm. more reflective eyes. It looked like yeah something that was slightly maybe more painful to the actors. Well, that was it it for the kids. So I I actually have I was trying to find this on Facebook. The guy from who'd worked on this film, who's in the practical effects group that I'm on on Facebook. And he talked about the, the contact lenses having reflective material so that when a light was shown on them, it's very much like a road sign. And it works really well in the scene where the gravedigger has a confrontation with the school teacher. It really works there. But the problem is they had to be taken out every 10 minutes because they were very painful. Okay, to wear. yeah. You couldn't do that for long. 
And, and they uh, no, didn't want to do it for the and children. And they certainly didn't want to do it yeah. for the children because it was going to injure them. Um, but anyhow, yes, yeah, so the vampire shows up, Barlow shows up for the first time. Barlow shows up for the first time and knocks the heads of his parents together in a real Three Stooges move right. that apparently kills both of them. So, yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so now Mark is mm-hmm. an orphan. Which is why now, he's going to get... the priest is there at the time. This is Father Callahan. Father Callahan, the the skeptical priest who was trying to explain to Ben Mears earlier about evil with a little E and what that means. Oh, that's right, it's yes. not real evil. By the way, Father Callahan has wonderful hair, too. There's, like, a lot of good toupees in this movie. Ooh, Susan's dad's definitely got a toupee on his head. Right. Um, and so, he, I don't... How does he get away? Well, what happens is that Father Callahan, very heroically, realizing he's made a mistake, that's right. gets in the way and lets and bargains for the boy's life. Bargains for, for the boy, that's right. That's right. Now, Father Callahan's uh, faith doesn't work in this case. Oh, yeah. He says, you're going to go, you and your faith are going to go up against Barlow and his faith. No crucifix, no nothing. Right. Which hey, is a, a sucker fight. <laughs> Father Callahan's faith was. Not very well, strong. Remember, he just a few hours ago was saying there's no such thing as evil with a big E. So this is a shock to him, and he has no idea how to process it. The only thing he can do is try to be a good priest and let the kid and go. And just, yes, yeah, say throw himself in front of the you, child. <laughs> right, which is what he winds up doing. And um, I love which, the fact... Which, what, what are Stephen King's themes? What is the greatest right. thing you can do? Right. <laughs> Put yourself in the way of the innocent. <laughs> well, that was also Jesus. Protect the innocent. So, well, Jesus and Stephen King agree. <laughs> so <laughs> even though do. a minute ago you didn't believe in evil, you're probably still going to go to heaven? Right. Well, that's what he was counting on. I, I think. So. After something broke his neck with a Three Stooges move, probably. Um, Callahan does not die in the books. He goes on right. and is in different things. I remember and that And is from played the book, by... Yeah. Uh, what is the... I, we just saw James Cromwell, yeah. who I'm pretty sure has played a priest at least 60% of his career. <laughs> right. What was the last name like Cromwell? And, you know, he can do an Irish accent. He's really also... Well. It gets past having to costume him. He's right. a very tall man. Right. So just put him in a big cassock and we're right. good. <laughs> um, so then Mark is going to go... He's got... He's going to go into that house and he's going to kill them. Which I like. I like the fact that as he's leaving, you know, his his priest who's going to get killed for him, he's like, "I'm going to." I'm kill going you. to kill you. Yeah. And that was really heroic, despite the fact that he's completely like completely over on the head. wrong end of this. At the same time, Ben is talking uh, Susan's father mm-hmm. and Susan really into understanding that there are vampires and we need to do something. A vampires. B. Get out of Dodge. Yes. You, Which is for Susan. Susan, you should leave. Uh-huh. Dad, I'm going to need your help. Susan does not leave. No, Susan. Because bitches never do what they tell you, what you tell them to do. That's terrible. <laughs> she is a strong woman with her own mind, and she doesn't want to leave. She should have left. What she, the, the thing is, at this point, it seems to be that the Mars in the House is drawing everyone. That's true. Because the vampires wind up there. They wind up migrating to the Mars in the house. That's true. Uh, as we see later in the film. Yeah. And so she winds up uh, seeing... She sees the boy. She sees right. Mark. She sees Mark running in there. Running into the house. Right. And she's like, oh, no, you can't be going in there. Because she also knows that the same yeah. day, Ben is like, before sunset, we need to go. Oh, and it's very... Mm. This is some very 
sort of stereotypical uh-huh. vampire Right. Like I stuff. said, he plays very we much have to, down the traditional line. We have to go... Okay. Straker can be killed uh-huh. by whatever. He li- they literally right. are like gun, knife, whatever. Mm-hmm. Whatever you can kill a man with, you can kill him with because he's a man. The vampire, you have to kill in the daytime uh-huh. with a stake through the heart. A wooden stake through the heart. Okay. Uh... So they're going to go before the sun goes down mm-hmm. and do this now. Because already we've got Ned's out, Mike's out, Baby 1 and Baby 2 are out. I can't remember their names. The vampire the twins. The vampire twins. Right. They're out. Um, Pete's, or Mike's Petries, the mm. Petries 1 and 2, right. out. Um, the The Undertaker's dog, out. <laughs> So we've got seven deaths and counting. Oh, no, and Crockett. That's eight. I think that's all of them. And then two people have left town. Which is funny. You would never think that Boom Boom would be lucky, but yes, she was. Yes, she was. (laughs) Comparatively. She didn't die this way. Uh Uh, And so they're going up to the house, and, of course, Ben and uh, Bill... Norton, Susan's dad, see Susan's car and they're like, son of a bitch. She never listens. And they climb up. This house is very strange because the bottom of this house is, it's stone foundation that you shouldn't be able to see, but you definitely can see. It's exposed, so it looks like... And and it looks like like 15 feet of stone. Right, because it's built in the side of a hill. And that was something that when we discussed it, I said, I think it's intentionally meant to evoke Dracula's castle like you're on a parapet or something. Or, Maybe. Or on a fortress wall. This house is very interesting yeah. looking, and I'm wondering... And the interior of the house is fantastic. It is the just the creepiest... Well, the art director went wild with this. It was wonderful. I'd never want to live in that house. It looks nightmarish, but... Um... And let me see. So they go in. They're going to. Oh, yeah, no. It definitely. It doesn't look like that anymore. Nuts. Um, they go in mm-hmm. and they are looking around for Susan first. Uh, and her dad goes upstairs and is impaled upon. Oh, first of all, this house. Mm-hmm. Stryker's been living in it, right. but it is Hideous. disgusting. It is co- like it looks like it's covered in mold and mil- and. Um, right. It is like I said. It's wonderful as a piece of art direction. It looks a little bit like um, down pillows have been opened and spread everywhere. That there's this white sort of tufty stuff all over the floors and you were saying that was type of mold probably. That was something that we saw when we first came into this house. I, I don't know what it is. It's so odd. It's called but... white mold. I'm looking oh, okay. Yeah, and it's it's common in very old houses. I don't know. Um... And like, it's super dark. Uh-huh. It's dingy. Like, it's not livable. Like, I don't know how this man, who is a man, mm-hmm. is living in this house. Well, he's been <laughs> empowered with something by the vampire itself. That's true. He's, he's also pretty strong. really strong. Yeah. It's called efflorescence. Oh, okay. It's an accumulation of mineral and salt on brick and cement. And you see it on all over all over old houses. But this stuff was also like 
like it looked like it was moving. Like it and looked almost like leaves and it stuff. It indicates in there. Uh, excess water and uh, serious structural issues. Whoa, whoa. That's okay. We're going to burn this fucking house down. Right. Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay, so that explains why it was in our basement. But yeah, that's something that you see in old houses. But here it's everything. I, what I like about this house is that when you're seeing the, the, the interior of the house, a, you can smell it. <laughs> well, you can home. because you have some synesthetic. But issues. also, I get the impression that if you touch the wall, it would be spongy. It's just that covered with mold and, and gross. It's really a, a masterpiece of art direction for me. It's a great. Set. Oh, and it's almost all like sort of built over. Interesting. So they're in the house proper, uh-huh. which you have to climb up a hill to get to. No, Bonnie Bedelia, God bless her. I don't need a stunt person. I'm going to have the most she's, ungraceful scramble up this hillside. She scrambled up that hill like a <laughs> real <all> person. Wars, <laughs> like like a person would. And that's what I like about this film. It's like, no, that wasn't graceful at all. Yeah. That, that so um, we see that um, Mark has tied up, mm-hmm. uh, has been tied up by Straker. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's the perfect person to be tied up because you know what he can do? Get out of any knot. So he, we see him start working at the knots. And um, Susan's father, as I said, is um, pushed by Straker into... A wall of antlers. A wall of antlers and is impaled. And then he is dead. At which point... Ben is like, fuck this noise. I just need to kill this vampire and get the hell out. And then we see Mark sort of run through the house and he runs out the front door and mm. Ben's like, well, what's going on? And he goes, you have to get out of here. They're vampires. This right. is like, And he's like, I know, I'm here to kill them. And I'm like, hey, give them your stakes. Because he totally came with stakes. I don't, I don't know if uh, Ben did, but apparently he finds some because he definitely has some by the end. Ben is the worst vampire killer in the history of the world. <laughs> <laughs> he has a bottle of holy water that he drops. He drops it. Oh, it's he nearly a... shoots his his uh, his friend uh, Mark no? at one oh, point. Mark. He nearly empties a thirty eight into him because he's so spooked and jumpy. It's yeah. It's how he managed to actually kill a vampire is anybody's guess because he does everything wrong on getting to this house. Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous and um. Buffy, he ate. At this point, Ben is like, he literally says, I'm sorry, Susan. <laughs> but he is like, the sun's going down, and if the sun comes up again, this thing's going to kill right. several more people, we've got to assume. Uh, he does shoot Stryker uh, however many times his gun allows him to do yeah. so. Six, eight? I don't know. One of those and numbers. And James Mason gets to really have it up with Oof. his death scene. He is he, lovely. <laughs> he keeps coming for most right. of those bullets. <laughs> But he does end up, we think, dying. We just see his hand. Because you can't actually watch him die because this is television. Right. So we just see his hand loosen. And then he's dead. And then we go downstairs. um, And who's he? Is he with Mark? At this point, he's with Mark. Okay, so Mark and Ben go downstairs and find... This is where he spills the holy water. Right. It, it sort of um, indicates that they're on the right track because right. it starts smoking uh, against the door that is hiding the coffin. Right. Because, yeah, Which, this vampire is definitely in a coffin. And this is the great part. It's in the root cellar. It's in the grossest part of the house that yep. you'd never want to 
in the root cellar in a coffin. Uh So he goes in and he pulls out the coffin. Ben pulls out the coffin. And then Mark is sort of back up against the, the door. And we can see through the door and there are bodies back there, which means there are more vampires. More, more vampires, <laughs> but they are asleep because it is daytime. Right. Uh, he but opens the, the coffin. It's been that late in the day. And then, yeah, the sun's on its way down. He opens the coffin and he begins to hammer this stake into the chest of this uh, vampire. And we see Mark looking petrified. And at this point, the vampires and there are there's at least three of them, and they're mm-hmm. coming towards the door. And we're like. <gasps> Well, we recognize them. I think it's like Ned and um, the first two, at least, yeah. are Ned and... Uh, Mike? Mike, yeah, I think so. And I think there was a... I thought that there was like a brunette woman. There might have been. and there's. But I didn't know who that them. was, yeah. yeah. Um, and Mark, before they get to him, he mm-hmm. notices and then just slams the door on them. That's one way to deal with it. And... Uh, he finishes knifing or staking him. It uh-huh. takes him a long time, but he gets that stake into that heart. And then uh, Barlow fades away. And you said his the pillow that his head was on was so the gross. The pillow is so filthy. <laughs> oh, my God. You were so disturbed I was having by a it. lot of bad... You're like, he's like, laying on it and it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, he's been dead for right. a long time. He does not care. Yeah, because you were thinking, his like, the least of his problems <laughs> are the dirty pillows, which is... Oh. Oh, dirty pillows. It's a go. callback to ding, Carrie. Ding, ding. It's, a, it's a callback to our last episode. Terrible. A lot of this is going to happen yes. in the future. And um, then, once again, I think this is the second time he apologizes to Susan because they are right. not going to look for her. They are burning this house. Well, the house, house is burning down whether they like it or not, so they have to get the hell out of there. Yeah. And there's no way to find her in this weird... Oh, did he, like, did he the burst into flames? The they were looking... How, how did how did the I fire start? I forget how start? the fire starts, but they add gasoline to it. So. Yeah, they do. I mean, they definitely. Right. It's just like, yeah, well, sorry, Susan. And then they leave, and then they're in Guatemala, mm-hmm. and that's the opening and closing. Right. Is they're in Guatemala, and their holy water has lit up. A star has appeared, and they're like, "Oh, there's more." So apparently they are both running from and fighting vampires. Right. I think they're running from vampires and taking them out as they go along. And um, sticking to Catholic countries where you can find holy water. Holy water, very important. Mm. And they head back to where they're staying, and beautiful Susan Mm. is laying in his bed with her eyes closed. She can't see them glow. (laughs) And she says, and she can talk. Most of the vampires that we see talk before now, Mm. real raspy, very basic sentences. Open window. I mean, it's very. I have fangs. The very best fangs. It's basic sentences. Those fangs are very difficult to speak around. I think there's some ADR thing going on because I can't imagine. She. There's no way, especially her. The other ones probably. I think that's why they kept their dialogue so Uh basic, and they were real raspy in their speech. But she sounds just like she. But she's also been a vampire longer than a day. She's been a vampire for two years now. She's passed over from blue to sexy. And she's like, I found. Yeah, right. She's not discolored Uh because Mike was real purple. Mm -hmm. It was not a good look. Um, yes, she's 
she's pale and mm-hmm. lovely and her eyes are closed and she's like, I found you. And he's like, you found me. And she's like, I love you. And he goes, yes. <laughs> I was like, oof. Um, and she's like, we could be together forever. And he goes to hug her like he's um, hypnotized by her. And she's opening her fangy mouth and then he says, fangy I'm mouth. sorry. And then he strikes her with his stake. Oh, oh, he true love. love. Sad. That's what happens when you fall in love with people. That's why you shouldn't do it. Also, this is why you don't go to Guatemala. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm not going to say that. That's terrible. You don't want to take that later, given. I'm taking that out. Yeah, given, <laughs> given current situation, that's not good. So, the, yes, the, the when the movie starts, Salem's Lot has a population of 2013, and when the movie ends, it's less than that. It's probably 13. <laughs> Significantly less. So, what than did that. you feel about the movie? I thought it was fun. Barlow was a letdown mm-hmm. for me okay. as a grown woman right. who has seen things. <laughs> I like as soon as they showed him, I was like, "Oh, we're really just Nosferatuing uh, to fuck up." See, but I agree with it in the context of the times. We it wasn't. No, I we think that that's a, good. Right, a few years away from. You know, what was it? Christopher Lee, Jack Palance, Louis Jordan, yeah. all doing this sort of suave vampire. It just wasn't. That's fine. Make him yeah. a monster. He was so blue. He just wasn't very. Scary. His teeth were creepy. I did like the glowing eyes of the other vampires. Yeah. This is Reggie Nalder, and I just want to add something very funny to this. Not funny, but, you know, in context. He was an Austrian film and television actor and a cabaret performer. Okay. And his very distinctive and strange face was a result of burns he suffered and reconstructive surgery. But it led him this very kind of skeletal appearance that made him very popular as a villain in movies. He did uh, Alfred Hitchcock, the the man who knew too much. But one of the stranger things, I saw him a lot on television, was that he had a role in the 1981 Disney film The Devil and Max Devlin. Okay. Which is a comedy starring uh, Elliot Gould and Bill Cosby as the devil. Wow, wow. At which point, which is problematic in itself, but at which point, when he was asked later on what it was like to work with Bill Cosby, being so popular after that, he said the man is a pig, rude, arrogant, and untalented. Woof. Now. He was on the train early. Right, and so (laughs) it makes you wonder if he was aware of something that not everyone else was later on. Maybe. Because, you know, you're working on a film set and you start picking up on things like, oh, wait a second, that guy's not on the up and up. And everyone lo- loves him. So I think one of the people that we didn't mention was Kenneth McMillan as Constable Parkins Gillespie. Oh, yeah. The constable was hilarious in this. And I would like to point out that the producer of this movie is Sterling Siliphant, who uh, wrote, was a writer, basically. Uh, oh, he wrote In the Heat of the Night, where there's also a Sheriff Gillespie. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And so there's a neat kind of uh, parallel there. Parallel, yeah. Uh, but Parkins Gillespie is hysterical. I love that character. He's really good because yeah. he is not interested. Right. <laughs> he nopes the fuck out. Right. Like, I legitimately, at one point, so he's leaving. Mm-hmm. He, he ben, is tr- him, right. ben is trying to get him to, like, help him take out these vampires. And he's like, nope. He's got his car full of his family. And he's like, I am 
out of here. And before he leaves, he's like, oh, I have something for you. And he goes up to his police car to get something out of it. And I really thought he was going to put the star, the constable star or whatever, onto Ben, like a real high noon situation. But uh, he doesn't. He gives him a gun instead, which I don't know if it's better or worse. But it allowed it's him to shoot. the gun that winds up yep. stopping Straker. Straker. Straker was, you know, going to just beat them to death in that case. Now, he's played by Kenneth McMillan, who is a... He, Kenneth McMillan was an interesting character actor because he was, like, in every big movie in the 70s, every tough crime drama. He was in Serpico. He was in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, he was in The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. He oh, was, yeah. He was just like, if you needed that guy with that face, that was him. And he had a very long career afterwards, yeah. especially in television. So he is a really first-rate actor, and he has one or two really wonderful scenes where his constable is trying to match wits with Stryker. James Mason's Oh, so good. This best one is this. Stryker, so he's on, on the way out, and Stryker goes, Chow, const- Chow, constable. And he goes, Chow? Chow, it's a familiar Italian expression meaning goodbye. I didn't know you were Italian. I'm not. The word is. Right. <laughs> I love it. Mason is like, you are worms. You are but worms <laughs> beneath right. my feet. And you can tell from you who's read my writing how this influenced me. You can see it. Like the echo of the kind of characters that I write about in James Mason's interactions with people, how disdainful oh, he is. Oh, he's, so, he's just the epitome of disdain. And there's a, lo- a lovely piece, too, where the constable is talking, like, you're not being bedeviled by Owens. Owens. And like young ones. And James Mason's, excuse me, did you say yowns? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like the word is so weird to him, he has to draw attention to it. Have you seen Fright Night? Either of yes, them? I have. I've seen this. Feels like Fright Night to yeah. me. This feels like Fright and Night. I think a me. lot of films borrow from this. There's a you know, I really feel that Buffy the Vampire Slayer owes something to this. This idea of trying to find a modern way of dealing with these sort of ancient things, although in a much funnier way. But this film has a sense of humor, too, only it's more about the fear and the terror. David Soule looks really terrified. He the does. Movie. He's got a good, scared face. And his his whole thing mm-hmm. is really interesting because he's... And I'm sure that they go into more detail in, on this in the mm-hmm. book about if I'm drawn to this house... Right. It, what does that say? Like, am I... What's wrong with me? Yeah, and the, also with the relationship with Susan in the book, there's this horrible feeling that there's a really nasty version of fate working to put them together just to tear them apart. Which, I mean, is exactly what right. happens. And the other actor that you probably won't be familiar with and a lot of younger people won't be Lance Kerwin. Lance Kerwin was the child actor at the time. And what worked really well is that he was a very good actor. He was a really good actor. He, he seemed very right. thoughtful. Okay. Anything else? Nope. Nope. All right. Do you want to recommend anything? Um, I will say that having actually seen Infinity Wars last week, I would like to recommend that. Okay. I can't say If you're one of seven it. people who haven't seen right. Infinity War, well, you I, don't mean Infinity War. You mean excuse Endgame. Excuse me. Enders. <laughs> Avengers. Endgame. Avengers Endgame. Okay. There we are. I saw the second part of it, and it was actually it lived up to my expectations. It was really very good, and I loved how the main Avengers characters kind of reach a story. Each one has an arc, a story arc, that comes to a conclusion after 10 years. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, I really appreciate it. It was really well done. Um, I think you mentioned it, or the way that you put it, the emotions that you feel come genuine yeah. in this movie. It's not like you're being manipulated into it. Um, the one thing I will give away is that, yes, he actually does get to say Avengers Assemble. Yes. After 10 years of waiting for it, it actually gave me thrills. <laughs> I'm a child. But it was a great, I really enjoyed it. Do you have anything um, to recommend? I don't think so. Go to the Winchester Mystery House? Yeah. Get out of the house for a little bit. I don't know. I haven't... I don't know. It seems silly to go... Yes, Endgame. Yeah, but this is the funny thing, because usually... I mean, I I, I... I don't go for the big movie kind of thing. Oh, of course, that was obvious. No, but it actually really was good. There was It was like Black Panther in that... It's worth the attention it's getting. I think so. Yeah. If you've never seen any of the Marvel movies, give it a miss. <laughs> right. Yes, because it'll be so far entrenched that you won't understand what the hell is going on. They'll just be, why, why is that person green? Um, yeah, there's I've so many seen, green people in this movie. I've seen all of them. Mm-hmm. And I did rewatch um, Avengers Infinity War last week mm. in preparation. Or like a week before this one. Right. That was the most re-watching that I had done. Even if you haven't seen it, or if you have seen it, watching mm-hmm. it again before Endgame is a nice right. little refresher of where we are. Um, and also, the internet has hundreds of ideas on, here's everything you need to know before you go into this movie, yeah. so you're not totally lost. The internet also spoiled it for me horribly. Yeah. Oh, you really said... random ways. Oh, we're not going to do that now. <laughs> I was like, I want to know, because you said you were spoiled on two yeah, things, and, and you I'll, only I'll told me one I'll tell you about that them. later, but it's yeah. like, in the most random ways, one was on YouTube, of all places, and the other one was on Tumblr. Yeah, the scene where, and right. then you're spoiled, spoiled, spoiled. That's terrible. And what's worse is the Yo, one on YouTube... Yo, that's fucking terrible. The one on YouTube was a, an actual screenshot taken from somebody's phone... That, yeah. Of, of the screen while this was happening. So it's like I started seeing the scene being played. I'm like, oh no, it describes what it is underneath. There was no getting away from it. That sucks. I know that there was, uh, where was it, Thailand or somewhere in Asia where someone spoiled the movie and was probably beat up by all the people oh, standing yeah. in line. They that just, seems right. Everyone was kung fu fighting. I mean, well, we pop, went pop, pop, at 11.15 in the morning on Sunday, so uh-huh. we were already later. Um, but I had I was hoping that nobody would be coming out of the theater at that point, but then they had a, had a 7.15 showing right. that morning, so people were coming out. And then it was just like, please don't be talking about it, please don't be talking about well, it, please don't be talking also, about it. Also, um, you had an emotional day because you were doing Game of Thrones the same day. I did watch the Battle of Winterfell that night. Um, I'm not going to say anything about those experiences because they will be spoilery if I do. So... I did watch both of those on the same day, though. Yes. Uh, let's see. Is that everything? That's everything. So next week, we're going to cheat a little bit because we're watching a movie that both of us have seen. We are watching 1980s The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Shelley Duvall. <laughs> oh, also Jack Nicholson. And Scatman Crothers. That's right. He's a Scott man. I um, I think that movie is brilliant. I have come around to it, but we will get into yes, it next and, week. Yes, and <laughs> let's get into I it. I can't dig time. out my old Fangoria article, which was written by Stephen King. Oh yeah, he didn't like visiting it. the set of the mm-hmm. movie, going, "What the hell is this?" 
We'll get into yeah, a lot of that. It's funny because it was like that guy's a genius, but what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Which is fair, right? Which because is, the adaptation uh-huh. is very different than the right. book. So we will be talking about that next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's available on a number of platforms. So if you want to watch it with us, you should. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, you can email us at latecomers at gmail dot com. Nope. Latecomerspod at gmail.com. There we go. Uh, we would take voice memos there if you have anything you want to say on air. I'll play you. Look Audience how, participation. Look how brilliant those two are. That would be what they would say. Or you could ask us a question, or you could tell us we're wrong about a thing. Any of those things. We will accept it. <laughs> uh, we have a Facebook page. Uh, you can just look for us, Latecomers Podcast, uh, on, fa- on Facebook. Facebook. Uh-huh. Uh, and we're on Twitter, uh, Latecomers Pod, at Latecomers Pod. Yep. So pod, we like will talk to you next whales. week. Uh, we love you very much. I remind you to take your medicine, which means I remind me to take my medicine. I did not today. And remember, better, better late, late than, than never. never.